Hey y'all, this is Mike Joseph, and you are listening to Detoxicity, a podcast about non-toxic masculinity. I want to thank you in advance for listening, and also remind you to push that subscribe button so you can have upcoming episodes delivered right to you. Also, feel free to leave feedback by rating and commenting. Finally, get in touch with me either by following me on socials, Tis Mike Joseph on Twitter and Detox Pod Guy on IG, or by emailing me, detoxpod at gmail.com for all y'all old school people. I love feedback. Don't hesitate to reach out with ideas for the show or suggestions for guests or if you yourself would like to be on the show. Thanks again for supporting this. It is greatly appreciated. Spring is in the air. You know what else is in the air? COVID-19. Even though many of us are now getting vaccinated, it's still important to mask up in public and treat each other kindly and safely. Hell, it's always important to treat each other kindly and safely. I wish you and your loved ones continued help and safety now and forever. In previous episodes, I've mentioned mentorship is something that's really important to me. I've been fortunate to have a couple of mentors over the course of my life. Shout out to Craig and Patrick, and I try to serve as a mentor to some of my younger friends as well. I call this episode's guest my Obi-Wan Kenobi because he has the ability to speak with great wisdom and experience, and he does so while making clear that he is still trying to figure out his own ongoing path. Jacob Slichter is best known as a drummer for the band Semisonic. He is also the author of the book So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, an honest account of the time in his life when Semisonic went from upstarts to Grammy-nominated radio mainstays. Currently, Jacob is a professor at Sarah Lawrence College, and he is wrapping up his second book. Very excited for that. One thing that struck me about Jake's first book was that he described his battles with anxiety in vivid detail, and in the days before Twitter and Instagram, it was unusual to hear that level of honesty from a rock star. As you'll find out over the course of our conversation, Jake is completely honest and transparent about everything, whether we're discussing his ongoing battle with imposter syndrome or why he feels as though Generation Z gets a bad rap. I hope you enjoy our conversation, folks. Here's Jake. I'm Jacob Slichter. I'm a uh, drummer. I play in the band Semisonic. I'm a writer. I've written a memoir about being a rock drummer. And I'm also a writing teacher at Sarah Lawrence. Most people call me Jake. And I now live in Brooklyn with my wife, Suzanne. So you grew up in, in the Midwest? Yeah. I grew up in Champaign-Urbana, which is a college town about two and a half hours south of Chicago. And how did you fall into drumming as something you were interested in then as a, a, a vocation, I guess? I, I had sort of grown up, I had been musical growing up. I started out on cello and piano. And in fifth grade, I picked up the drums. What first attracted me to drums was walking over to the University of Illinois football games with my dad. He liked to park his car next to where the marching band would start. And uh, we'd walk over with the band and I just immediately locked in on the drums. So I took up the drums in fifth grade and you know, a few months later, some kid on my school bus told me that he had a drum set that he wasn't using. And I swindled him out of it for like $25 in allowance savings. And then I told my mom I had done this and asked her to please drive over with the station wagon to get the drums out of his closet, which we did. We took them back to my house and I set them up in a closet above our garage. So it was sort of removed from the rest of the house. And I got to work playing with records and with the radio. And then in high school, there was this funk band in my school that a friend of mine had played in. And one day he told me that the drummer had left and they were looking for a new drummer and would I audition? So I was totally blown away because I love this band. And I went and auditioned for them and it totally sucked. And they did not let me in the band, but they said I could come back and audition again. And then I just sort of kept coming back for what they kept calling auditions, but, and, but were kind of practices. And I sort of had this probationary status in the band. And then, but then eventually I was sort of after they sort of finished auditioning other drummers, sometimes on my own drum set as I watched, I sort of got to the point where they were like, okay, he's bad, but look, he's better than any alternative. So we're just gonna work with this guy. And, and they got to work and they really just schooled me. They pushed me, they schooled me on 
how to hold down a groove, how to not rush or slow down. And by the end of that experience, which, you know, took me through like my sophomore and junior years of high school, I was like, man, I just love this. And two of the other guys in the band, you know, later became sort of professional musicians. They were all older than I was. So it was very much a sort of super learning experience. And that just kind of convinced me I wanted to be a drummer. Uh, I wanted to be a musician. I went to college, I went to music school. And after school, I eventually ended up in Minneapolis where a friend of mine who I had made music with before lived. And this is Dan Wilson, who is at the time was a member of the band Trip Shakespeare, which was a big band in the Midwest. I collaborated with all different people in Minneapolis uh, about things that eventually Dan, John and I got together and started a band. And after Trip Shakespeare broke up and that became the band Semisonic. And we had a nice career. Uh, we still have a nice career. You're still an active thing. Yeah. We're still, a, we're still a going concern. We started like in the early 90s and we're still going. But now we live in three different cities. There are so many questions I have from that biography. Well, first of all, with the band audition, they were like, we don't, we don't want to bring you in now, but come back and keep auditioning. Were they just assuming that there wasn't going to be someone else coming into audition? I'm wondering what the mindset was behind, you're a nah, but stick around anyways. Well, first of all, they were just much better than I was. So, you know, letting me in the band would not have been an appropriate response really for them. I don't think it would have worked. I don't think they could have honestly said, yeah, you're, we'll, we'll take you. I mean, they just, literally my drumming was not in any kind of form where they could have made that kind of decision. And I think, I mean, audition, whatever, you know, come back for another practice, just keep coming back was sort of, you know, the way that they were working through their skepticism and, but maybe also kind of like tough love, kind of, you want this? Show us, you know? And I, and I would, I would take my drums home every, after every rehearsal. If you're a drummer, you kind of know that like schlepping your drums around is kind of a thing, you know? And so I would like pack up my whole drum set and take it back home and lug it upstairs and set it up and practice and then go back and forth like that. But I think like after a while they thought, well, at least he's serious. And he does seem to be listening to what we're telling him, you know, he needs to work on. And, and I would show up, you know, I wouldn't just like blow off practice. Sure. And I remember hearing that Mike Mills of REM once said, it's amazing how far you can get in this business by just showing up. And that, that's actually, there's something to be said for that. <laughs> so, so I think that's kind of what it was about. I can't imagine the horror I would feel if I was a drummer and they were still auditioning people on my drum set with me watching. Was that a weird feeling for you or? It wasn't as weird as hearing my own drumming played back on cassette. So they would actually tape <laughs> Because if they said, you know, you're speeding up, you're slowing down, I said, well, no, I'm not. And then they'd play back a tape and it was horrific, you know. So I think actually the, the much bigger indictment of my drumming was just through my own ears listening to the playback, which was pretty powerful medicine. Got that. How often were you practicing back in the day? And how often do you practice now? Because you still practice drums. Yeah, you know, I probably put in an hour or so a day. Back then I was, you know, two hours a day, you know, with different 45s that the band of songs, the band wanted me to learn and just learning how to do it and struggling. And, you know, I still, whenever I hear the song, Shake Your Rump to the Funk by the Barcades, I, <laughs> I feel, I like the song, but I also, it's like, it should come with a trigger warning for me. It just <laughs> reminds me of like how poorly I played it and, how upset everybody was with the, you know, the lack of groove in my rendering of the song. So yeah, it was, I practiced a lot. 
Now you got to college and if I remember correctly, you studied or you majored in African-American studies yeah. in college. What was it that led you in that direction for your, your college career? It was the, of, of the sort of various offerings. It felt like the one that was the most sort of urgent and important to me. You know, I had sort of thought about being an English major because writing was important to me, but just the subject of race and racism. And I had, you know, a number of different friend groups and some of whom were black friends and spent a lot of time hanging out. And just that experience had got me sort of looking at the world and thinking about racism and how it sort of permeates everything. And I had grown up going to a school that had a pronounced, you know, civil rights curriculum. And so I had always been thinking about these questions. And so, yeah, FROM just felt like, it just felt like a really urgent thing to be studying. And I think at the time I was like, why am I here in college? I want to be a musician. Uh, so if I'm here, shouldn't I be doing something that just feels really sort of like of immediate importance? I guess that was kind of part of the logic. Now we're here in 2021 when this gets published and wokeness and the whole concept of people being interested in other cultures or being empathetic about other cultures is something that's talked about a lot. I was a very, very young person when you were in college. Is, is this sort of something kind of coming back in a cyclical fashion or was there a discourse back then that people just don't really talk about now? I'm not the best expert on it, but I would say people talked about it back then, but people talk about it more now. And I think that's really the work of a lot of activists pushing hard to, to widen the conversation and to bring the conversation into places where it didn't used to be. I think, for instance, it was in college when I really realized that I'm a racist, that by which I mean, you know, that just... Uh, the ra there's so much racist programming in the world that even someone who considers themselves a good person, a liberal, you know, open-minded person, still I carried a lot of racism around in me. And I, you know, I, I would see it sort of show up here and there and I'd be like, oh, wow, that's, that's kind of heavy. And so I sort of realized that, you know, yeah, I should, I should really sort of think of myself as a, as a racist and that this is a lifelong project for me to sort of deprogram that in me. Sort of, sort of like recovery. You know, I think, I, I think I, what I say now is that I'm a, re a recovering racist, to use the language of, you know, sort of addiction recovery. But I think like back then, I, I didn't really know which other white people I could talk to about this. There were a couple of black friends that I kind of talked to about it with, but but even there, I just felt like, eh, I don't want to, this is like, this is kind of weird and imposing and I don't want to do that. But there were no white people who I felt like I could sort of share that with. Whereas today, I actually have a number of white friends who are open about speaking about their own work that way. So I think that feels like a shift. Now it's not enough of a shift by a long shot. I mean, we, there's the, the distance we need to go is immense, but I would probably say that there's more conversation today and more awareness about this today among people who are interested in working on it. And I guess I would especially notice among white people, like I'm, I teach at Sarah Lawrence and I have younger white students who really go into this stuff a lot, you know, by no means all of them, but a few of them do. And they go into it much harder than I did when I was their age. So I don't know. Like I said, I'm not an expert, but that's sure. That's, that would be my sort of non-expert general sense of things. So going from Illinois to Minneapolis, staying in those cold weather climates for some reason. <laughs> you talk a lot in your book about sort of the grind of getting signed and working with producers and kind of all this different stuff. 
and I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on, on Semisonic, but what was the most memorable part of kind of working your way up the ladder as, as a drummer in a rock band and gaining commercial success? I mean, one of the things that stands out would be the very beginning because my bandmates, Dan and John, were already very well known. So even the first shows that we played, when we were a new band, a lot of people knew about us immediately because they had already known of Dan and John's previous band. So when we started playing, we would play in small clubs, but they were packed. So I think just even that very first experience of becoming the local publicly known musician was intense because I felt like, well, I'm, I, I really have a lot of imposter syndrome and it was really bad back then. And I would be looking out for the drums and I would know that, for instance, I was probably the oldest person in the room. And I probably didn't know half the music that the people out in the audience listened to. And I was learning how to rock. I, I wasn't like, I wasn't yet fully like someone who considered himself a rock drummer. Dan and John were kind of like helping me along with that. So I think like just be sort of taking that big step in such a public way was a, a memorable moment for me. And then I would say when we started having records come out and I had some touring and performing under my belt, there was a kind of a different kind of experience where I went from, as I thought of it, you know, when I went from playing defense to playing offense, you know, when I was like, when I stopped worrying about, you know, don't screw up and started thinking about how can I make this cool? But how, you, can, how can we have a good show tonight? How can I do this? Do you know exactly when that shift happened? Well, it, was, it wasn't a, an exact moment that I would say, you know, about halfway through touring our first record. I just got to a point where I had played enough shows and had been used to being on the road enough that I was now set on the fact that I wanted to, I wanted to not only survive the experience, I wanted to enjoy and thrive within the experience. So you've mentioned in your book that you had issues with anxiety as a performer, yeah. did that start when you began performing? Was anxiety always a thing or did it, was it just like, oh shit, I had to get on stage in front of these people. What is happening to me? I mean, it, it, I always knew I had been an anxious person, but I hadn't realized how much stage fright I would have to deal with until our very first shows. And I think it when it really got bad were the shows we started playing out of town. Because when you're on the road, you're not around your support system, or you're not around your support system outside of the band. Your band, the band really is your support system. But, you know, as I learned, like, you really sort of have to protect your alone time on the road. And I would see Dan and John sort of protecting their, like, space because you're just crammed together all day long. And you just can't share everything. And you can't, you know, you have to sort of you have to put some space between yourself and other people. So in the space between me and my bandmates, there was a lot of questions about, am I really up to this? You know, and I, I think it was especially hard because I was in my early thirties at the time. And I thought, wow, I've been waiting my whole life for this. And now here I am and I'm scared out of my mind. I'd spend the whole day in the van as we'd ride to the next show, worrying if I was gonna melt down on stage. And I would have panic attacks on stage and I would, I would hide it from Dan and John, but also sometimes they'd look around at the drumming and say, is everything okay back there? You know, I'd probably start speeding up or like, or the, the drumming might start, you know, kind of becoming wobbly as a result of the anxiety. And so I had to kind of figure out how to control it. And I, I kind of did that. And, and then I just kind of got enough reps in that I, it, it just sort of, I started getting used to how to do it. What were your methods to control the anxiety? I, I realized that you're, you, you can't tell your mind to relax, but you can tell your body to send your mind signals. So in other words, you know, so many people will like shake someone else and say, relax, you know, but that doesn't relax you. What relaxes you is like 
I'd, I'd be on the drums and I realized, okay, I have to relax my facial muscles. I have to sit up with my shoulders back instead of cave forward in a sort of protective position. I have to slow down my breathing. And so doing things like that would just sort of filter up into my mind and just reassure my mind to sort of stop the feedback loop. Because if you get nervous up here and then your body starts doing all that stuff, tensing up, then it becomes sort of cyclical. So I had to learn how to break that feedback loop. But once I learned how to do that, and I still use that technique today, because you know, I'm, we only perform now, you know, every year or so. So it's, you know, there's a lot of distance in between shows. So I have to sort of like learn how to do it all over again. But at least now I've I've got a method. That's a good. Me I mean, and not just for drumming in terms of regular life. I don't recognize often how tense I am. Yeah. So even just you saying like, put your shoulders back and have the right posture and all that stuff. I'm like, oh, yeah. this, this does work when it's in your head to think about it. Yeah. Um, but some of us with anxiety, I think a lot of us with anxiety are just so used to being in like this kind of space. It never registers until someone's like, you look fucking tense. Like, yeah. <laughs> calm down. <laughs> I think another thing I learned that's sort of, it's maybe a little bit more meta, but it, but it kind of relates, is I had to stop trying to be someone else on the drums. Who are you trying to be? The kind of drummer who gets on the cover of Modern Drummer magazine. You know, someone who's super verbose on the drums and impresses the people in the crowd. I actually just had to learn how to be myself. And myself on the drums is, is much more like someone who just wants to play the groove and play the song and help shape the song and foreground the song, not the drumming. And that's kind of hard because I feel like my very best drumming is kind of hidden in plain sight because it's just groovy and, and the right thing to play. It's not necessarily blow away Tommy Lee kind of moment. Right, um, you're in service of the song as opposed to it being in service of Jake Slichter. Yeah, I mean, really uh, what I, I want is like, I, w I want to open up things so that the crowd can experience the music. And that requires something much more like hypnosis than dazzling them. So I think I had to shift from like, oh, I need to dazzle them, I'm not enough, to just being, no, just go up there and do your thing. And that's what you have, so give that. That makes sense. As a professional musician, a successful professional musician, you are one of the people who doesn't seem to have ever fallen victim to all of the bullshit that professional musicians deal with. Is is that because you were a little older? Is it because of the band you were in? Is it because you were raised a certain way? What do you attribute that to? You mean like sort of drug use and, and sort of just like that kind of rock star life? Yeah. That, you know, I was never really cut out for that. I would not ascribe it to any sense of virtue or anything like that. I think like I've never been drunk and, and it's not because I don't think people should not get drunk. Ever? I guess I'm not a big advocate of getting drunk, but like... <laughs> I just like, I don't want to get sick. You know, I don't want to have a hangover. I, I, I'm like, I'm a little too consequence oriented for that kind of activity. And like, I'm just such a lightweight, you know, drugs. I, you know, I smoked weed some in high school. That's it. You know, I did cocaine twice. The second time was as a study aid. And like, I just, I, I, I don't really have any interest or desire in those directions, you know? So, and I think also I was just kind of a shy person. And I know that there are shy people who use alcohol and drugs, but for some reason, the way it just played out in me was I just kind of stayed away from all of it. Have you always been comfortable being a shy person? Did you ever wish you were more outgoing? Totally wish I was more outgoing. Yeah, oh, I hate, I hate being shy. Yeah, I don't like it. I, I feel like I sell myself out all the time as a result of being shy. And I, you know, I pass up opportunities. Yeah, I don't like it. Even now, like if someone invited you to a 
like a dinner party or uh, a show or a, I don't know, what do people invite other people to? <laughs> right. I mean, if it were a non-COVID time and I was invited to a dinner party, I think I spend a, a certain amount of time trying to sort of figure, I, I, you know, weird way to put it is I'm sort of still playing the drums, even in that setting like i'm sort of thinking what does this conversation need and sometimes it just really depends on the chemistry of the group if there's someone there who's loud and just like dominating and um aggressive i tend not to fight against that i just tend to sort of scoot back and just let them do their thing i think if they were going after somebody at the table things might change but more by and large in those kinds of situations sometimes my attention is on the other quiet people and maybe they're waiting to say something and so toss the question their way or bring them into the conversation so i think that's like a little bit of like i think i play drums kind of like a middle child you know? <laughs> and i think i kind of conduct myself in the world that way too like i'm just sort of trying to like make it all work hold it all together you know help people get along and i'm not necessarily successful at it but that's just kind of my programming i don't think anyone can be successful at it all the time yeah no that that is completely dependent on the personalities of the people that you're trying to trying to wrangle yeah absolutely you you speak a lot in this conversation even about imposter syndrome and when you're at your most comfortable like what do you feel like do you see if i can word that differently when are there occasions and instances in which you actually feel like you belong and you're not worried about what am i doing here why am i here yeah. that sort of thing it can, it can happen in any number of settings i think like i always i feel pretty at home teaching you know in a classroom i i'm not because I know more than the students, I often don't. Just more that I feel like I understand the process that we're all engaged in. And I feel like I can, I can help that process. I can, my job as the teacher is, is to not to know more than everybody else or to impart my knowledge to them, but, but to make sure that learning is happening. And I think I can recognize learning when it's happening and sort of Think to myself oh we need more of that this is helping and and maybe that's not helping so we'll let's try and have less of that i think like writing sometimes when i when i feel like i've written something that speaks for me i don't feel like an imposter because i'm just literally just trying to be myself on the page when i introduce myself to other people as a drummer or as a writer or as a teacher then the the imposter syndrome starts kicking up because it's sort of like you know, claiming a title, an occupational or vocational title like that, I think can maybe start to trigger it. Sure. Uh, and I think like, I think for me, so much of the imposter syndrome is about thinking I need an A plus in everything or else I shouldn't even bother claiming to do it. And it's not that I don't think we shouldn't do our absolute best work all the time, even as impossible as that sounds, but it's more like, I think that the minute you start relying on other people to determine your worth, the, the minute you've shifted into allowing other people to determine whether you are or are not something is the minute imposter syndrome really kicks in. So the minute I say, hi, I'm a drummer, and then I'm immediately imagining some other drummer in the room saying, he thinks he's a drummer? <laughs> He only has two tom-toms, doesn't play faster than X beats per minute or whatever. Or he thinks he's a writer, you know, the only book he wrote is about playing the drums. He <laughs> thinks he's a teacher, you know, he only got the teaching job because he wrote a book. And the only reason he get, wrote a book is because he played, in the drum, played the drums in this band and blah, 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 blah. And it's, you know, you can just tell yourself stories like that all day long. So I think what my my solution to it or it's i i can't really say solution because i haven't been able to make it stick but like what i try to remember is that 
what I do is not up to anybody else. And my standards are actually my standards and nobody else's. And I, those are the ones that are the most important to me. I'm listening to what you're saying. And there's a whole like, well, objectively, Jake, all you have to do to say that you're a drummer is play drums. But I also sort of understand there's almost like a self-effacing piece to it. Like, well, I don't play drums. John Bonham plays the drums. Or I, I don't write books, you know? Yeah. yeah. But the reality is saying what you do isn't a judgment on how accomplished or how good or bad you are at it. It's a statement of fact. This is what I do. I mean, I think you really put your finger on it. Like, I actually say this to my students. I have to, I have to take more of my own medicine. I tell my students, you know, the question is not, are you a good writer or a bad writer? No one can tell you that. The only question is, did I write today? Did I practice drums today? You know, ask yourself about what you did today and what you're going to do today. And if you just kind of start and end the conversation there, you'll get a lot further than you would if you sit around wondering how, you know, looking in the mirror and saying mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the best drummer of them all? And where do I, and how far down from the top of that list am I? So yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's much more about what we do. I mean, another way of, of, of saying it is there are some questions that can't be answered. Like the question, am I or am I not a drummer? If it's asked in any other way other than, do you know how to pick up the drumsticks and play the drums? It's a sort of meaningless question. Are you a good drummer or a bad drummer? There's no answer to that because it's, it's not an objectively answerable question in the same way that can you bench 400 pounds is. So ask yourself answerable questions and kind of stick to that. I think that's a very intelligent, very teacherly, very scholarly, uh, <laughs> thing to say i because I, I suffer from the same thing if someone asked me what i do i'm kind of like i don't know yeah because I, I there's a part of me that feels like what you say you are should be based on some success metric yeah but the reality is that it it, it isn't and right. i think a lot of us can be our own worst critics when it comes to that yeah totally yeah and it's funny because the next question I was going to ask you was, how did you make the switch from being a musician to being uh, a teacher? And you answered it for me. <laughs> yeah, I got a call uh, from someone I had actually met. Uh, I met in, in 1993 when, or four, when Semisonic went to record our first album. We went out to L.A., and while I was out there, I wrote to someone whose books I had been reading. And I, I just wanted to know if I could buy this person an iced tea and just talk to them. And they said, well, why don't you come out to my house? So I went out to his house and met his wife and family. And then they had me out again. And the second time they introduced me to a friend of theirs who was a novelist and, you know, who had just had a great book come out. And over the years, that novelist had kind of kept tabs on me. And then eventually he became the director of the writing program at Sarah Lawrence. And when he needed a writing teacher, he had noticed that I had written a book and was kind of interested in that book. And so he, he, he just having on the basis of hung out with me for like an hour, 20 years earlier, called me up and said, have you ever thought about teaching? Do you teach? Are you interested in it? And as it had turned out, I had thought a lot about teaching. I was just always interested in teaching and had always just asked myself, well, if I was going to teach this, how would I teach it? And if I was going to teach writing, how would I teach that? And so actually, thanks to all of those sort of, you know, one-sided dialogues in my mind, I actually had an, a response for him and, and they hired me and I love it. I love teaching. It's it, really, really it was on the spot. It was on, like they hired me on the spot. Yeah. Kind or of, yeah, within like two days of phone calls, I was out of town at the time. So I wasn't able to go in for an actual face-to-face -face interview, but I, I, I gave a coherent answer and I had made some classroom appearances on a one-off basis in various friends' classrooms. So I had, you know, it, it, it seemed to him 
that I had a reasonable shot at doing a good job. So he hired me. And you love it. I love it, yeah. What, what do you love most about it? I love being the professor that I wish I had always had. And that is like someone who affirms the right to learn, that you have the right to be there learning. Because so many of my most damaging experiences in school were experiences of being told, you don't belong in this classroom or you should be ashamed of your performance or just really stuff that shuts you down. And what's interesting is I have sort of two reputations as a teacher. One is that I think I'm viewed as a nice person. The second is I really work my students hard. And I think that's, I really, I'm, I would say I, I enjoy having that reputation because I think that's what you need to be. So, I work hard as a teacher and I think my students know that and I think they work hard in response to that and I think that's a good combination. You have that caring dad energy. <laughs> yeah, I even have like the sweater. I like it. I mean, I've told you before that is I love that sweater. Yeah. You know, going to buy that one day. You know, my dad, my dad was a teacher and his dad was a teacher and his dad's dad was a teacher and his mom's dad was a teacher. You know, I've come from all these like, you know, a long line of teachers. My mom was a teacher and I just have a lot of, there's a lot of that sort of in the air when I was growing up. So I think like it was, a, it's a natural sort of place for me to land. As a teacher, what do you feel in a positive or negative way, the quote unquote generation gap with your students? Like, are there times when you think you're speaking to them and everything's just sailing over the head and vice versa? No, I find that they are, I love my students. I find that they are very plugged in. They have a, I, I, I am so angered when I see like the today's college kids and high school kids slagged off as, you know, ungrateful, you know, living with their heads in the clouds. Like, first of all, you should have your head in the clouds when you're in college. Like you should be dreaming of impossible things. And I mean, how else is the world going to change? But secondly, like they work hard. My students work really hard. I don't think they're necessarily different from any other students of any other time. I think that generally humans love to learn and they love to work hard to learn. They just want to be given work that makes sense to them. And they want a learning process that they understand and feel like they have a stake in. I, I think the things I value as a teacher are the things that my favorite teachers valued as teachers. And I think I see in my students a response that is much like what my response was to my favorite teachers. So I don't, I don't think there's a generational difference. I, I hear people talk about it. I just don't see it. I think the, the kids today are great and, and actually considering how much money they're spending to go to college and how much debt they're amassing I have nothing but respect for them. When you're, as you're talking, you're taking me back to my own school, ex my own academic experience. And there were some instructors who were totally checked out. There were some who were my way or the highway kind of people. Right. And the ones I took to the best were the ones who understood that everyone had different ways of learning. Yeah and actually took time to work with you to, to figure out what the best way was for you to get the material that they were teaching. And also picked up on, on your level of interest. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, it's weird. I think one thing that sometimes, once in a while, I'll, I'll come across a teacher who believes that our job as teachers is to replicate the cruelty that's out in the world in the classroom so that students are already used to the cold, cruel world by the time they get out there in the cold, cruel world. I kind of think like maybe our job is to teach them how to do it some, some other way so that the world becomes less cruel. And I think like learning, understanding that people learn differently is such a part of that. I mean, 
one of the best things about being a teacher is learning. You really do learn a lot as a teacher. You learn a lot about what you're teaching. Like I've learned a lot about writing as I've taught writing because I'm, I'm puzzling through all of the problems that the students are having and realizing, oh yeah, these are familiar problems. And how is it that I solve that? And learning how to articulate that sort of deepens my understanding of writing. So coming across someone who, for whom the standard explanation that I came up with doesn't work and I have to come up with a new way of doing it kind of pushes me to sort of do a little bit of deeper learning and understanding. And, and I always come out of that experience with like, I, I come out of it ahead for myself, let alone for the students. So I, I, I think it's just a win-win. And yeah, it is kind of amazing that people think that what school is really about is just the students learning how to comply and conform. I think that's such a terrible, terrible model. I agree with you. Where did you learn empathy? That is the thing that sticks out most about hearing you talk about teaching and just about knowing you as a human being, where did that button come from? I think from my mom, you know, my mom would always like, she'd drop me off at school. She'd say, who's that kid on the edge of the playground there sitting by themselves? Like, oh, that's so-and-so. And she'd go, why don't you go say, say hi to so-and-so? And, and she was always saying, how do you think so, you know, such and such a person feels about this or so-and-so just had a death in their family. Don't avoid them. That's going to be the most natural feeling in the world to stay away from them. Don't do that, Jacob. Go up and talk to them. So I think she was really always just very focused on like plugging in to like what other people are feeling. So I think I would say um, most of all my mom. That's some good parenting right there. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for that. And how do you use that not in teaching, but just in sort of dealing with the world the way it is now? You know, I don't know. It's like weird. Like when you ask the question, where did I learn empathy? I mean, I, I gave sort of an intellectual answer because I could remember these lessons from my mom. But I, I think like learning empathy and, and all that stuff, of course, just happens in a way on a level that's almost physical. I, I think that one thing I've, I've learned that I need to do is do an assessment of things that I might be missing and be very systematic about it. So like if a student comes to me and they need something to be very systematic about thinking like, okay, this student is far from home. They are in my office. And though I think I'm a nice approachable person, I'm still a professor. And that's a scary thing for a student sometimes. You're an authority you know, figure. I, I just try to be like very systematic about the ways in which, for instance, I hold power that someone else might not. So that could be like, it could play out in any number of ways. But so like, how do I hold power? Or where is my awareness narrowed by my experience, my experiences in in all different ways and how can I be, what might I be paying attention to here that will sort of open that up a little bit and help me to respond in a more human, real way? You know, like what don't I know? What is it that I don't know? What am I entering into this situation? What ignorance am I bringing into this situation and, and what am I gonna do about that? So I think that those are maybe important questions. It sounds so noble and high-minded, <laughs> but I think it's, I, tr I think for me, I just try to make it more just like, okay, I, I, I try to think about what it would be like for somebody else and to be kind of systematic about that. So that helps. I have so much work to do in so many areas, you know, it's just like, I can't even tell you, but, but I would say that's like at least a starting point. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to be noble and high-minded. I, I guess I, what I meant by that is like, what I'm trying to do in those moments is, is just literally be very sort of like checklist kind of like, it's not even about, it, 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 I, I try to be much more sort of like systematic about it. Sure. 
I think that the minute you start feeling noble about something, you've already, your awareness is like, so trying to sort of like well, broaden the awareness is, I think, an important thing for me. Nothing stings as much as learning that I missed something. That always, that always kind of stings me. Oh, I get that. You know, I mean, I think probably the other, you know, maybe if I saw something and then just didn't do anything about it, that sucks too. But sure. I think actually weirdly knowing that I missed something really can sting me. I don't, I don't think that's weird at all. Yeah. I, I am curious, and I don't know that we've ever really talked about this. I'm curious about the role your faith plays in all of this, mm -hmm. because you are, I know a lot of people who self-identify as religious people. Yeah. And in I I have a an aversion to that because most of the religious people I know just want to kind of bludgeon you over the head with, with yeah. dogma. Yeah. You're different because your faith and the way that you show your faith is and I'm not saying this to blow smoke up your ass either, is warm and inclusive and non-judgmental. So I'm just curious as to where that all came from and how that manifests itself now or I mean, how it evolves. Yeah, you know, I got started in my faith two ways. First, you know, my dad was an atheist. My mom is a lifelong churchgoer liberal-minded person and she got into church because she got into civil rights and then I went off to this school where they had a civil rights curriculum I had sort of grown up I was six years old when Martin Luther King was killed and I didn't know who he was until he got killed okay but I had already figured out that there were like Nixon supporters and I didn't like the Nixon supporters and I had already sort of figured out that the Nixon supporters were sort of the more sort of churchy folks among the white people around where I lived. When I got to second grade and started learning about civil rights movement and African-American history, and, and then I, I had black friends because now the schools were integrated, the grade schools. And then I started seeing black people who were interested in religion and their takeaways, some of their takeaways were the same as the white religious people, but a number of, in a number of really important ways, their takeaways were much different. Like, God is not down with racism. God is not down with the order of things in the world. And that was just like a very early bit of like important piece of programming for me. And it just seemed instantly correct to me. So I grew up with sort of like a, a skepticism about religion and a very divided feeling about it. And I've always felt very uncomfortable about it. Then I got to college and I was politically radicalized by some black Christians who were actually Pentecostals. Politically radicalized in some ways, I, their cultural politics are far more conservative than mine. And, and I sort of, you know, still very close friends with them. And, and some of them have sort of held on to their sort of holiness, you know, sort of cultural politics that I just can't embrace. We're friends and we're, we talk about it. But that, that experience was really profound for me because they really sort of pushed me. That was, the, that was the experience that pushed me to sort of, first of all, to understand my racism, which like for me is like about like how I would talk about original sin. Most people think original sin is like masturbation or like, you know, whatever, you know, being sexually attracted to somebody or something. Whereas like, I think like original sin is like racism, sexism, anti-Semitism, ableism, transphobia, all of the isms that sort of are just, we're born into it because we're born into this world that's like that. So those black Christians that I knew that I was in a fellowship with in college really did a lot to sort of expand my understanding of what my faith could be about. And then, I, you know, I met like, queer Christians. I started to confront my sexism, my misogyny, my homophobia and transphobia, all kinds of stuff. My Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and, and, and just sort of like all the ways in which my thinking was corrupted. 
And I kind of felt like, well, I need my faith to sort of really enter into that and, and work through it. I think that like one thing that's important for me is like atheists are such a huge influence on my spiritual beliefs, <laughs> asking tough questions, not taking any bullshit, calling out the church when the church is fucked up and doing terrible things, just saying that there needs to be more, not less separation of church and state. All of these things I agree with. And I would say if you had 10 questions about like church, you know, religion and society, I'd probably answer every question as atheists would. I think there are some hardcore atheists who are kind of nonsensical about it, but that, <laughs> I think they just give atheists a bad rap. I think it, it's actually, we need, I, I, I need to sort of identify and have my mind up. Like James Baldwin is an example. Like James Baldwin sort of renounced Christianity. How could we blame him? Who could, who's right. going to argue, who would argue anybody out of that position? Well, it's, it's to me, and Lord knows I am not going to speak for James Baldwin at all. I think a lot of times your experience dealing, A, dealing with church people, dealing yeah. with people who consider themselves religious or Christian, or I, not even Christian, because I think there's a, a thread through all people who consider themselves staunch insert name of religion here yeah and there's something about you that runs contrary to what that church believes what that religion believes that you can't do anything about it's just a part of you i think for a lot of people for me i, I should stop saying for a lot of people for me there's a there's a disconnect. I want to go to the same place everyone else goes. But, and there shouldn't be anything about, if I live, you know, a good life and, and treat people correctly, which I, to me, religion is really all about just respect and empathy and treating people well. Why shouldn't I be allowed to, why should I be thought of any differently because of something about myself that I can't change that you say is sinful? Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually, but I would even take it further. I think that for instance, if someone's, I think that like, for instance, queer sexuality, it's not something I think tolerated is like such a minimal expectation. I think it should be celebrated. I think it should be embraced and affirmed and like learned from. And that it's only my job to love and affirm people. I mean, I can, I, we, we need to be called out when we do wrong things. But like, if you can't see the difference between racism and loving somebody of the same sex or gender, I don't know what to say, you know? That's just such a radically different, those are such radically different things. It's just like, they couldn't be more opposite. Right. Right, I agree. So what, here's a question. What is the most important thing that you think you have learned over the course of your life? I was gonna drill it down and say over the course of your adult life or yeah. your post semisonic life, but what is the most important thing you have learned in your life, Jake? There is just so much that I don't know, but that's totally okay. And that the process of learning that and being here is awesome and in and of itself, apart from what anybody else has to say about how well I've done it, how well or how poorly I've done it. I don't know, that was a tough question. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's, that's also something that's really not for anybody else to judge. Yeah, you're the only person who can say well done or well done in this situation because I don't think there's I, you know I don't think there's a, a, a grade paper waiting for us at the end of all of this but, but I would say that well for instance I would say that for instance suppose I do something transphobic and a trans friend of mine says Jake come here 
love you, but here's something you just did. And it, can you see how that's transphobic? And that's a drag, right? Yeah. That's change. So, and, and I feel like you have to really be open to that. And you have to have your, your fallibility is inextricably part of who you are. And you have to, you better be ready to, to roll with that. And that doesn't condemn you. It just means that, well, it's, it's part of the situation that you're in. And so you have to be willing to grow and, and accept all the learning that's sort of given to you. And, and doing so is the best thing. I really like the idea of being open to learn. Mm-hmm. And it's not something I think I would have thought was necessary, maybe even 10, 12, 15 years ago. I think there's a point in time when you sort of reckon with yourself and you're like, or you just get an idea of how big the rest of the world is, or you meet people who push you out of your comfort zone and you have to allow yourself to get pushed out of there and accept the fact that there are so many different schools of thought that might be different from the one that you had in your head, but it's totally fine. Right. You know, I think if I were going to maybe sum up, if you were going to ask, maybe a better answer to your question about like, what is the biggest thing I've learned? I think it might be this, that we're here to learn and that the deepest form of learning is to love. Like love is really a very deep form of learning because it's a commitment. It requires a commitment. It it, it implies commitment and that you're in it and you're going to have to keep learning in order to do it. So Maybe that's what I would say that that like love is the deepest we're here to learn and the deepest form of learning is loving. So I love that. (laughs) And my last question for you, what are you most excited about for 2021? Well, I've got a new book, you know, and I've got a sort of now I want to find a publisher, but I've, I've finished a memoir about my life as a religious person. And so I'm excited about getting that out into the world. I'm excited. Semisonic has some more music that we're going to record and, and put out. I'm excited about that and excited to play shows, which we'll do. And, you know, I would say most of all, I'm just excited. I'm, I'm hopeful about the vaccines and I just waiting for that day sometime in the next few months when we can all sort of be together again and not be, you know, not be so distant where we can come together and be in coffee shops together and see strangers across the room and browse bookstores and rub shoulders as we're looking through books we might buy. And, you know, it's just like all of those, I mean, I would, can't wait to be in an actual classroom again with real, you know, people instead of faces on a computer. So, and like to have coffee with friends, you know, I'm looking forward to all of that. So I'm, I'm hopeful about 2021. As, as you should be. I, I think that if you've lived through the experience of 2020 and you have any kind of empathetic bone in you, 2021 has got to be better. So uh, definitely thanks to Jake for taking the time out of his schedule to uh, sit and be interviewed. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, Semisonic released an EP called You're Not Alone last year. Make sure you check that out. You can purchase it or stream it anywhere you find music. You can also find Jake on Twitter at Portable Philosophy. That is Portable Philosophy without the P-H-Y at the end. And uh, he's his real name, Jacob Slichter, on Instagram. Um, I want to go back a little bit and talk about Jake's relationship to religion and spirituality because that part of the conversation really meant a lot to me. Uh, generally speaking, people who describe themselves as devout make me really uneasy. I've, I grew up in a Roman Catholic home and, uh, my relationship with religion has always been weird on account of my queerness and also on account of the hypocrisy that I've seen throughout my life. Uh, you don't have to look far to catalog the atrocities that are, that are committed daily in the name of God. Um, on a personal level, it seemed as though every time I vocally invited someone who's claimed to be a person of God to talk about their beliefs and how they relate to me, they've declined the invitation. 
One of many things I love about Jake is the fact that he's done the work and he approaches religion and spirituality with a critical lens. His God is inclusive and welcoming and not judgmental, and that relationship, most importantly, is a living thing. Knowing all of that, and knowing that he's willing to answer those difficult questions and engage people about his spirituality and his relationship relationship with God, makes it easy for me to respect and appreciate his perspective. So, thank you again, Jake. Thanks for listening to this episode of Detoxicity. I hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that you push that subscribe button and follow on socials. Once again, I am DetoxPodGuy on Instagram, and I am TizMikeJoseph on Twitter. Please feel free to rate and comment, and also reach out if you know anyone that would like to be on the show, or if you know anyone who would like to uh, listen to the show, or who would enjoy listening to the show, or who would get something out of the message that we're sending in these episodes. Uh, I want to thank Calvin Williams for providing the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each of these podcasts. I want to thank Jacob Block for providing the artwork that you see when you're listening to this episode on platforms. I want to thank Jeff Giles for the inspiration behind the creation of this podcast to begin with, along with Andrew Grossman, uh, who's been a previous guest on the show and also provided sort of a seed for this podcast to take place. Uh, Once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this podcast. I want to thank you for listening and please take care of yourselves. And I would say take care of yourselves and each other, but I would be stealing from Jerry Springer if I did that. But you get the idea. See you next week.